Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yana Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Dr. Jordan McSweeney, who is the author of a new book, Far-Right Political Parties in Australia. Thanks for joining us, Jordan. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Thanks, Cam. Glad to glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. I guess just to begin with, what was the impetus for writing the book, Jordan? Well, most directly, the book grew out of my PhD research, which was on basically why why doesn't the far right in Australia do as well electorally as comparable parties in Europe? And I guess my interest in that grew out of uh, sort of coming of age through undergrad, doing anti-racist work around Reclaim Australia and how that basically spun into Pauline Hanson getting four people elected at the 2016 federal election. But then by 2019, everything just sort of falling apart for the far right. So, yeah, trying to trying to get an understanding of why, despite some pretty favourable conditions for the far right in Australia, why they were sort of going backwards electorally. Yeah, so I guess... Just to jump right into it, there's a bit of racism out there. It seems conditions are favourable. So, what's the story? Why do they keep on uh, losing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, conditions are definitely pretty favourable. I mean, everything from normalised Islamophobia and bipartisan anti-refugee sentiments, um, got declining trust in major parties, which is producing a desire for alternatives among the electorate. Major parties are willing to work with the far right when votes are needed in the Senate, unlike you have Corden Santos in lots of other European countries to try and delegitimize this. And of course, we have a very ambivalent to supportive commercial media environment for the far right. So the conditions should be right, right? Based on what we know about far right parties and what, what leads to electoral success, they should potentially be performing very well, but they don't in Australia, right? So take the 2019 federal election, for example. This was sort of the high point historically of Australian far-right electoral performance, or participation rather, not performance. You had eight far-right parties contesting the election, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Fraser Anning's Conservative National Party, Yellow Vest Australia, which used to be the Australian Liberty Alliance, Rise Up Australia Party, Love Australia Relieve, Australia First Party, Great Australian Party, and the Citizens Electoral Council, which is now the Australian Citizens Party. But they all flopped, right? Only Pauline Hanson's One Nation even got above 1% of the first first preference vote Nationally, after the election, the Fraser Annings Party, Yellow Vest and Rise Up Australia all deregistered. The next year, the AFP and Love Australia Relieve were deregistered by the AEC for lack of members. So it's all sort of fallen apart for the far right at this point electorally. 
And I guess the argument I'm trying to make is that despite all of these very favorable conditions, despite sort of no shortage of potential far-right competitors, the reason they fail is largely because they can't take advantage of these favorable conditions, right? And the reason they can't do this is, I argue, they lack a functioning party organization. So far-right political parties are very bad at the political party side of things. They don't have effective and accountable leaders. They don't have purpose-built structures, local branches, and things like that. They can't attract and retain or train up quality candidates to represent the party and sell their message and wage a local election and campaign. And then across the board, generally not very good at just using their fairly limited resources in a way that gets dividends. And all of this is a good thing. I'm extremely thrilled that we have poorly organized far-right parties in Australia because I do worry that if a well-organized party came along, we would be Sweden and Finland, for example, used to be considered these outliers in European far-right space that the far-right just can't take hold, blah, blah, blah. But then all of a sudden, an effective leader and party comes along and Sweden Democrats are the second biggest party in the Swedish national parliament now. So I think, unfortunately, the ground is sort of ripe. Fortunately, the far-right is very bad at taking advantage of that electorally. And so, in a way, the book is sort of a warning to not rest on our laurels, right? We can't just think that because Pauline Hanson's One Nation is going backwards at the polls that, sweet, wipe our hands and be, yay, we've beaten racism in Australia. Actually, I think it's a sort of warning that we need to be vigilant and, and think about other spaces where the far right is perhaps being more successful or other ways in which they're getting a foot in the door. So, like things like mainstreaming Islamophobia and stuff like that. Jim Salim and Fraser Running's Robot Sex Guide do not listen to this, but Jordan, why can't they get organised? What? Why can't they just get a Google sheet going? Yeah, I don't know. And this is <laughs> this is sort of the funny thing about it because leaving my book out of it, there's a extensive literature of how parties should organise to be effective. So all of this guide, I suppose, is sort of already out there. And for whatever reason, they haven't read it, and that's good. I think a lot of it has to do with things, some of the big competing personalities out there. So like Pauline Hanson and James Ashby, for example, who's the chief of staff. They're very good, I guess, at some things in which they do. Pauline Hanson's clearly not an idiot. She's been around for 30 years and has had individually a pretty successful career. But she hasn't really been able to turn that, let's maybe call it external charisma, for lack of a better term, into internal leadership. And I think we can most visibly see this with things unilaterally dissolving the New South Wales state executive, giving Mark Latham the boot and things like that, and basically the party shooting itself in its foot continually. It does this when it recruits candidates that bring the party persistently further into disrepute, whether it's the guy that mowed a swastika into the lawn and Sig Heil to uh, various people who've made racist, misogynistic, homophobic statements on social media, two things, James Ashby going to try and solicit money from the NRA and getting caught on tape. So they just fortunately um, continue to shoot themselves in the foot. There's this constant stream of cock-ups. And part of the reason why this continues to happen is there are internally within the parties no internal accountability mechanisms, right? Paul Enhance's One Nation is nominally run by executive decree. Pauline Hanson and her circle of supporters decide they want to do something, so they do it. And if people within the party are unhappy about it, well, that's just too bad. There's no grievance mechanism. And if there was, it wouldn't affect 
Hanson based on the way the party's structured. She's written in the constitution as a party's president for life. She can handpick her successor when she eventually decides to step away from politics. So what happens is instead of managing the factional tensions in, in a way that moves the party towards a more streamlined and, and professionalized organization, people just leave. And you have these highly inflammatory splits in the party. All of a sudden, your small membership base is even smaller. All of a sudden, you've got a new competitor on the scene taking away the handful of votes you were already getting. You have a whole suite of bad press coverage again, and the cycle sort of continues. And this has happened over and over again since One Nation returned to the polls in 2016. And it's the history of One Nation in its first iteration from 1996 to the mid-2000s. Um, yeah. Do you think, Jordan, that when I think about figures like Hanson and Anning and maybe some others, they seem to be driven in large measure by opportunism? And I, I guess I wonder, in terms of the calibre of the sorts of people who are establishing and leading these parties, is the other thing that's missing a real drive and determination to build a mass party in the first place? Yeah, and, and I, I yes, I, I think you're... you're you're right there, Andy. I mean, yeah, Pauline Hanson's been around long enough. She knows how politics work. I mean, I don't know that – I'm not saying that you, you have to have a mass party to be a successful party. I mean, Kurt Velder's Party for Freedom in the Netherlands is quite literally a one-person party. He's the only legal member of the party organization. And that works extremely well. But the, the difference is he's a pretty slick political operator. He – is able to build and get good people around him, good in the sense that they're skilled political operators, not that they're morally or ethically good, rather. And he's able to set up an infrastructure that is able to support him and people on his electoral list. And in Australia, that doesn't really seem to happen. I mean, the electoral strategy of a party, say Fraser Rainey's Conservative National Party in 2019, was, okay, they stood, they stood candidates in basically just about every seat in the lower house um, and the Senate. But of course, the party knew that there was no way that any of these people were ever going to be elected. So why did they overextend their extremely limited resources to begin with? One reason is probably to try and appear like a legitimate political party, that they were serious, that they could contest all of these seats. But I think the real thing, which, which speaks to your point about perhaps opportunism and the sort of self-centered, leader-centric nature of these parties, is that really their electoral campaign is about harvesting crucial Senate votes to keep the party leader in a plush, well-paying job and keep them in Parliament. There isn't really an interest in building an organisation beyond that. I will, I, I will say that One Nation compared to the other seven parties in the book is much more developed and has gradually, while simultaneously backsliding federally, has had a degree of state-level consolidation. So they have a parliamentarian now in Victoria and South Australia for the first time ever. But even while this is happening, even at the state level, they're backsliding. Queensland, they lost Steve Dixon. New South Wales, they blew that up. Now they've gone from three just to one candidate, one uh, MLC rather. WA, they've also had a split there. So they're down to just one member too. So there is, I think, yeah, as you say, a, a lack of willingness, for whatever reason, to actually build a smoothly operating party machine. And I think because part of that would require a degree of trade-off, that requires some degree of accountability mechanism, it requires some degree of power sharing potentially, and it would potentially require decentering Hanson a little bit, which doesn't seem to be something that they're particularly interested in. Um, 
Among other things, you, in terms of uh, examining party organisation, I guess what's also interesting, speaking in terms of popularity and so on, is many of these parties have extensive social media profiles with significant followings, and yet at the same time, fairly modest returns at the ballot box. So can you talk about how these parties employ social media, what the intention is of them doing so, and what are the actual effects? Yeah, for sure. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Pauline Hanson is basically Australia's most successful in terms of likes and reach politician on Facebook, for example. Now, of course, all of this needs to be sort of thought about in terms of the caveat that we don't know where the audience is actually located. For all we know, it's Republicans in the US or like whatever, right? So we don't know that they're actually Australians who are able to vote in elections in Australia who are liking, sharing, watching, consuming Pauline Hanson's content, for example. So I, I think it's important to have that kind of caveat around their numbers. But yeah, in, in, in raw numbers, they have way bigger reach engagement, just raw followers than most other Australian politicians. But unlike what I guess a lot of the literature on non-far-right political parties and how they use social media would suggest, which is parties would use things like Facebook or Twitter to extend their regular organizational functions. So they'd use it to try and recruit new members to try and drive up fundraising. They might have digital branch structures by having Facebook groups for various local groups of the party. You would expect them to have, say, Facebook profiles for their candidates, maybe a Facebook profile for various state branches of the party, state and territory branches of the party, and things like that. And to, during an election campaign, use it primarily to get people to do election-related activities, show up for a polling booth, hand out how-to-vote cards, and all of that kind of stuff. Australian far-right parties don't really do that. They do a little bit of that, but that's not the main way that they use social media by any measure. For the most part, it's really about more social movement-orientated activities. So it's about frame construction and dissemination and collective identity building. And that's not to say that non-far-right parties don't do that as well, but it's it's part of the broader organizational activity. Whereas for Australian far-right parties, this is sort of all they do. And what I mean by those two things is it's about, I guess, identifying uh, a particular problem. Let's say, I don't know, immigration, one nation's always harping on about ascribing blame for that problem. So let's say it's the ALP and talking about a solution. Well, the only solution is support one nation, vote for us in 2019 or whatever, because we're the only ones that can stop immigration or what have you. So it's about articulating and getting their audience to, to share content about that. And it's also about creating this sense of collective identity. So trying to, I think it's the least important part of what these parties do, but a lot of them have populist modes of communication, which is concerned with the articulation of an antagonistic relationship between a people that one nation claims to represent and an elite, which apparently have the worst interests of Australia at heart. They, they want to open the floodgates to immigration, all of that kind of stuff. And so a big part of One Nation's social media content and just part of what a party One Nation does anyway, online or offline, is sort of build up this, this in and out group dynamic as, as a sort of motor for their activity. And the point here, I guess, is rather than trying to get their online followers to join the party, become a dues paying member, make a donation, hand out how to vote cards on the day, although I'm very sure they'd be, I'm sure they'd be happy if people did do that. 
the main thing they want people doing is liking and commenting and sharing their content to try and boost it, to try and get it to reach wider audiences and hopefully attract, let's say, traditional media attention and things like that. Jordan, one of One Nation's big social media outputs in the past few years has been their Please Explain cartoon series produced just up the road from 3CR at Stepmate Studios in Fitzroy. Did you have to watch all of these for your research? Uh, yes, tragically. Several times as well. It's very... It, I mean, and I'm on, I'm on the back foot for this to begin with because I'm not a South Park fan. And, and the, this series, for um, your listeners who may not know, don't go and watch it. It's really not worth your time. But it's basically a 2D animated cartoon commissioned by Pauline Hanson's One Nation that attempts to rip or tries to ape, I suppose, South Park in both style and content. The series recasts the parliament as a schoolroom. Pauline Hanson's parliamentary colleagues are unruly school children, and Pauline Hanson is the disciplinarian teacher who punishes them for being deviant, whatever. And the idea is to, as One Nation tells it, provide a satirical, quote, humorous look at Australian politics with the aim of trying to reach a, as they describe it, more youthful and less politically engaged audience. Now, I guess their social media uh, content more broadly, it's not clear that that's what these videos have done. Certainly, they've racked up quite a lot of views. The first season, which first episode started to come out in sort of the end of 2021 in the lead up to the 2022 federal election. And they racked up millions of views across YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or X, and TikTok, although a lot less views on TikTok. And they also drove heaps of traditional media coverage. I think about 50 newspaper uh, articles were written about the series across various Australian mastheads, which ranged from the sycophantic and fawning and that wasn't limited to just, say, Sky News. The entertainment writer in SMH Age, Carl Quinn, called them, is this the future of Australian political advertising? Like, Pauline Hanson's kind of a genius. Wow, this is amazing. You don't ever have to hand it to them. Through to, I, I think, more realistic criticisms. There was an op-ed in The Guardian being like, yeah, even when it tries to be funny, it's still racist, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, the, the party has, has invested quite a lot of money into this. The first season costs them... $100,000, give or take. I mean, basically, James Ashby just said it cost an undescribed, undisclosed six-figure sum. And since then, they've been trying to fund it by flogging booze, which is really weird, I think. But yeah, they have a special edition Pauline Hansen's rum uh, and a special edition Pauline Hansen's Christmas gin that they use to fundraise the series. And so, they've, they've done two seasons now. And the second season becomes a little more explicitly ideological, I suppose. There's explicit discussion around cultural Marxists who are trying to destroy our children by giving them gender transitioning pills or whatever. But also like a lot of the episodes kind of just end with them trying to flog the various spirits that they're selling, which is very, very strange. And all of it, of course, though, is it all carries the mandatory electoral authorization. So it's all that's what makes it especially novel. I mean, there's, there's other far-right cartoons on YouTube, right? You've got Murdoch, Murdoch or whatever. But this is, in the English-speaking world, the only example of a political party doing an animated series as a sustained piece of political party advertising. I actually found out yesterday, speaking to a, an Austrian colleague, that the uh, Austrian Freedom Party actually did do something similar uh, about five or ten years ago, but that's in German, so I, I can't, can't translate it. 
Jordan, I don't know how to put this. The Please Explain brand, I mean, at the core of it, if for maybe for our younger listeners, don't know where Please Explain comes from. It was a moment in a, an interview in the 90s where Pauline Hanson didn't know what xenophobia was, despite the fact that you know, she was the the face of xenophobia in Australia at the time. It seems that this brand of ignorance has now been sort of reconstituted and reimagined. She's fully incorporated into herself. Sure, like, I don't want to be too on the nose, but what does that say? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I... Hanson has made please explain the sort of rallying cry for her populism in a way. It's the epitome of her folksy, down-to-earth, common sense, I represent the people sort of pitch that she likes to mask all of her racism and homophobia, et cetera, in. The idea being that xenophobia or are you xenophobic is a a highbrow, ivory tower question that ordinary Australians would not know what that word means. And so actually her being unable to answer that question and in the original interview asking, can you please explain what that means? That's actually a win for her. And she's been, yeah, very successful in basically rebranding that as, as her catch cry. It's, it's, I mean, her Facebook page, for example, is it's not just Pauline Hansen or Senator Pauline Hansen. It's Pauline Hansen's Please Explain the cartoon, which, and that predates the cartoon series. The cartoon series, they call it Please Explain. It's, it, it, she, she repeats it quite frequently, actually, in Parliament now when she's asking a question or something in the Senate. She'll call on, say, a Labor politician or whatever to please explain X policy measure. Yeah, and, and I, I, it has been actually quite successful, I think, in, in taking what I think a lot of people at the time thought was a point of ridiculing and basically taking that and flipping it into a point of pride and using it as a way of saying, see, I'm just like you and that's I'm sticking up for you, whatever, against these urban elites, ivory tower, whatever. I was going to say, well, you've got to hand it to her, but you don't have to hand it to her. Yeah, yeah, you never got to hand it to him, no. <laughs> Jordan, the, the book studies the far right. There's a non-far right, a mainstream right, I guess, or a centrist right, however you wish to describe it. What do you think are the most important points of distinction between the two? And I also ask in light of the fact that, as you indicated earlier, it seems as if the so-called far-right parties are battling over much of the same political territory as the mainstream right and Australian society as a whole in terms of, as you indicated, bipartisan support for locking up refugees and so on and so forth. So can you go into a little more detail about how you define these parties and what you understand their relationship to be to more mainstream expressions of right-wing sentiment. Yeah, for sure. It's an extremely important point to make and one that building on people, Katie Brown and William Mondon and Aaron Winter and their work around mainstreaming and things like that, it's important to state at the outset that when we talk about the far right, yeah, we run the risk of reifying this distinction between mainstream and far right. And actually those boundaries are not historically or ontologically fixed. They're very fuzzy at the best of times and they move back and forth Across time and across context, things that might be far right in one country, concentration camps on islands for refugees, is bipartisan policy in Australia, right? And has in fact provided a, a point of inspiration for much of Europe's far right in terms of immigration policy and what they want to achieve and have in some instances achieved. 
for example, the, the recent Italian-Albanian deal for offshore um, refugee processing there. But in terms of distinguishing for, I guess, the purpose of writing a book about far-right parties, I follow the work of Kazmuda. So far-right here is basically defined by an ideological core of nativism, which is radical xenophobia, radical nationalism and xenophobia. It's basically a slightly broader term for racism in many ways with authoritarianism. And in the case of several of the parties, Pauline Hansen's One Nation, that also have a populist mode of ideation and communication, populism as well. So I guess what makes them far right is that they have that ideological core that arguably conservatism, neoliberalism, whatever, doesn't necessarily have. Certainly, people who ascribe to those ideologies may engage in authoritarianism, racism, et cetera, et cetera. But I guess arguably it's not the core of their worldview. Uh, whereas for the far right, it is. Uh, and so the, the core problem, I suppose, the, the key puzzle that the far right tries to address for lack of a better word, is the presence of non-white, non-natives within the body politic. And I would argue that while I think certainly members of the Liberal National Party are concerned with that, it is not their primary concern. Their primary concern is probably free markets and crushing unions and things like that. So that, yeah, that, that's how I would differ, differentiate between those two. And then I think it's also important to note within the far right, there's various categories, extreme and radical. These are nominally differentiated on their, the basis of whether they adhere to the sort of principles of democracy or not. So the radical right, they might be very critical of liberalism and liberal democracy because of its cosmopolitanism, its ideas around inclusivity, tolerance, free speech, things like that. So they might disagree with the liberal character of liberal democracy, but in theory, anyway, they are nominally in favor of, let's say, elections. By comparison, the extreme right is inherently anti-democratic. So it wants total white revolution, installation of a corporatist fascist state, whatever. Yeah, that, that's, that's how I, I sort of conceptually distinguish between some of the different actors. And then, of course, in Australia, there is a lot of overlap between the so-called mainstream and the so-called far right. And this is, as you mentioned, Andy, and as I've talked about before, like ideological, uh, discursive rather. So think, things from Scott Morrison allegedly as immigration minister talking about using Muslims as a wedge issue, things like bipartisan support in Australia between the ALP and the Liberal National Party on locking up refugees and punitive approaches to asylum seekers. Um, but it also, I think very importantly, and this is something that definitely needs more research moving forward, is there's some quite material connections between the Australian far right and the Australian mainstream right in terms of personnel. This ranges from Corey Bernardi attending Australian Liberty Alliance, or what was then Australian Liberty Alliance fundraisers, George Christensen attending those fundraisers, George Christensen later becoming a candidate for One Nation, although that was... I think mostly so that he could collect a, a sort of payout for losing his seat rather than simply resigning it. It was about the difference of $100,000, I think. You have various figures from One Nation's past, including, of course, Pauline Hanson, who was a Liberal candidate and did appear on the Liberal ballot, uh, was still listed as on the Liberal ballot in the 1996 federal election where she first entered Parliament. David Oldfield, who's one of the three founders of Pauline Hanson's One Nation, he was, while secretly meeting with Hanson and uh, David Etridge, the, the third founding figure of, of the party, he was working as a staffer in then Liberal Employment Minister and later Prime Minister Tony Abbott's parliamentary office. You have 
people like Steve Dixon, who was a Liberal National Party of Queensland member of the state parliament there, resigning to join One Nation. Uh, and you had a similar thing occur in the state parliament in New South Wales recently. And of course, Mark Latham, former leader of the Federal Labor Party as well. I mean, this is the other thing. We shouldn't shouldn't say that the, the, the Labor Party is completely innocent here. You have people like Mark Latham coming over to join. You have people like uh, Graham, Graham Campbell, who founded the Australia First Party. He was a he was a breakaway from the, the Australian Labor Party and went on to stand as a candidate for One Nation in the 2001 federal election. So, yeah, there's a lot of movement. And, of course, James Ashby, we shouldn't forget, who's the chief of staff of One Nation today and a really key figure in their operation. He was a former Liberal staffer to Peter Slipper. So, the, the sort of the thread of One Nation definitely weaves through the Australian Liberal Party. And I think these are really important sort of material connections to keep in mind when we're talking about so that we don't unintentionally sort of carve off too clean a distinction between mainstream and extreme or whatever, because that, of course, risks normalizing the, the, the racism and the sort of exclusionary activity that a party like the Liberal National Party engages in by saying, yeah, yeah, the far right, they're the racist ones, the Liberal Party, that's just normal centre-right politics. And I think, I think we should be you know, more nuanced in our approach to that. There's an example you give in the book that I think speaks to that of Tony Abbott at the time in the 90s played a part in yeah. locking up Hanson. And, the- and then launching a book of speeches, yeah. And then saying, yeah, 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 that was, I actually, <laughs> when I was writing that section, I was like, oh, I might just go back and watch watch some of the content around that. I, I remembered Abbott launching this book of Pauline Hanson's speeches to Parliament, a collected edition that, that she had put out, launching it and thinking, oh, that's really weird. But I wonder what he actually, what, what did he actually say at the time? And it was crazier, <laughs> I guess, than I remember. Yeah, I was kind of gobsmacked that he actually said, to paraphrase, Australia would be in a better place. We wouldn't be in the mess we're in if we'd all just listened to Pauline Hanson back in 96. And that is a pretty extraordinary thing for a former prime minister to say. But then again, now he speaks at Orban's demography conferences in Hungary about the decline of the white race. So maybe it's not actually so surprising. Jordan, could you tell us a little bit about some of the research you did? How did you go about finding, for example, interview subjects and how did you get them to agree to speak to you? Yeah, that was tricky. So basically, the AEC, part of the reason the, the book focuses on the 2019 federal election, aside from it being, I guess, a critical case study as the high point of this electoral participation from which the electoral performance and participation of the Australian far right went backwards, many of the parties that contested that election folded shortly after and so on. It also strategically provides an opening because the AEC, the Australian Election Commission, publishes most of the, or makes public rather, contact details for most candidates who stand who stand at elections. So basically, after the election happened, I was able to download that Excel spreadsheet, and it fortunately had phone numbers and email addresses for roughly a bit over two hundred far right candidates stood across these eight parties. Most of them coming from Pauline Hanson's One Nation, Fraser Anning's Conservative National Party. And I basically just spent a few weeks on the phone calling people up one by one and asking them very politely if they would be happy to have a chat about their experiences as a candidate for whichever party they stood for, to tell me a little bit about their involvement in the party, what the campaign was like, their reflections on the party's performance, what they think should be done differently, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, the overall overall majority of people didn't answer their phone. And in fact... Quite a lot of the One Nation phone numbers were dead, 
like they wouldn't ring through. So I don't know if they had special, if they just had the phone number set up just for the campaign so they didn't have to give out their personal number or whatever. Eventually, some people were happy to say yes because they were just really happy to have a chat, I guess. <laughs> Can't really, it, 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 when people agreed, it really wasn't more complex than that. They just, they were wanted someone to listen to them talk about politics, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how I got them. I just, old fashioned, just calling around and it took quite a while and only about 10 or 11 people agreed in the end. And I'm very grateful to those who did agree because despite our obvious political differences, which I was pretty upfront about and they were kind of funny about actually and, but somewhat understanding it didn't, didn't discourage them. Yeah. It, they were just sort of pretty happy to go along with it. Jordan was recently seen a, a lot of discussion about anti-Semitism in Australia for obvious reasons. And I guess that's a, a sentiment that's more closely associated in the, the public mind with the extreme right, one of the distinctive features of the extreme right, the, the Nazis who run around and, and cause trouble, anti-Semites, and that's a bad thing. But I'm wondering if, well, two questions, I suppose. Does this enter at all into your study of the far right in Australia? Does this animate it? Is it, if it doesn't, or, well, how does this compare to other uh, parts of the world? And what do you think about the, I guess, response of the, the state and others? I noticed that there was a, a letter published recently by 600 very well-known Australians decrying anti-Semitism and racism. It didn't seem to call for any particular form of action, but registered anti-Semitism as a, a problem and situated it within a broader racist context. So, yes, the far right is associated with racism. Is there any particular role that anti-Semitism plays? And in far right discourse generally, um, how is that viewed? Yeah. Uh, so, most of the study focuses on 2019, uh, in the book anyway. And at that point in time, anti-Semitism was not anti-Semitism and philo-Semitism was not really a motivating factor for most of the parties. Pauline Hanson's One Nation, for example, doesn't really talk about it. Parties, the Australian Liberty Alliance and Love Australia Relieve, would do a little bit of philo-Semitic, Israel is good because it wages war against Muslims kind of rhetoric. But then the more conspiratorially orientated, and obviously anti-Semitism is a, is a core part of their business, I guess. But the more prominent way it manifested, I guess, at least in the 2019 federal election campaign, is with the Great Australian Party and the Citizens Electoral Alliance, which is now the Australian Citizens Party, which both, I guess, conspir conspiracist sort of orientated parties. Great Australian Party is a sort of one of those strange constitutionalist parties sort of adjacent to and overlapping a lot with sovereign citizen activism and ideology, while the Australian Citizens Party, CEC at the time, I mean, they're the Australian branch of Lyndon LaRouche, who was basically a neo-fascist and a, a sort of well-known Holocaust denier. Both of them are anti-Semitic, but in slightly different ways. They're anti-Semitic because right-wing conspiracy thinking always comes back to blood libel. It always comes back to this idea of a Jewish cabal at the heart of the global financial order that's trying to turn us into, destroy our sovereignty through manufactured crises kind of thing. So, Great Australia Party and um, Australian Citizens Party sort of have this in common. But the Australian Citizens Party, being a, a sort of LaRoucheite organisation, has an especially kooky flavour to it. 
and I shouldn't make light of this because it is quite serious and horrifically anti-Semitic, but it is also just so bonkers that you can't, if you don't laugh, you cry. So within the sort of CEC's dialogue, discourse rather, they're really concerned with the City of London, which they would put all in capital letters and it's proper noun. And the City of London is a stand-in for basically the Jewish cabal, the Jewish bankers of London kind of thing. But what's really strange about them is they're super fixated on the British royal family who, according to their ideology is, or according to their sort of worldview is a global drug cartel. Essentially, the British royal family pushes pornography and drugs on the youth of the world, the white youth of the world, to make them febrile and easier for the Jews to control or whatever. And it's just the weirdest, most insane thing ever. And the Australian citizens, the Great Australian Party, by contrast, who also believes that Australian sovereignty is being undermined by global bank globalists and international bankers, which is always triple parentheses, that by that they basically mean Jewish people. But their solution is we actually need to return to a more more close relationship with the British royal family because if we return to a more traditional reading of the Australian constitution and get rid of the Australia Act, which separated, that, that finalised like legal distinction between uh, the British legal system and, and what is the Australian legal system. If, if we sort of get rid of that, we can deal with the global financial conspiracy by giving, I don't know, King Charles more power over Australia or something. It's not entirely clear how this would actually work, of course. But yeah, anti-Semitism is, is much more subtle. They speak in euphemisms around international bankers and things like that rather than saying the Jewish cabal. But this is basically when you read it in a contextualized way, this is what what they're talking about. And I'm very sorry, I forgot the second part of the question, Andy. Oh, that's okay. I was just asking you to comment on recent measures that have been made in the parliament and elsewhere with regards addressing uh, anti-Semitism, but also expressions of neo-Nazism. Uh, the swastika ban and stuff. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, the short answer is I think it's a waste of time. Frankly, I think it's tinkering around the edges and does nothing to make the lives of members of the National Socialist Network really that much more difficult. I don't think it has any serious impact on their capacity to recruit and organize and what have you, not just because they have a whole suite of other symbols and gestures that they can rely on, but plenty of other jurisdictions have had similar bans for much longer, most notably Germany, and it certainly hasn't stopped the formation and growth of far-right neo-Nazi movements in those jurisdictions either. So I think it's something that the government can say they're acting, they're taking measures, they're acting tough on, blah, blah, blah. But I think it actually does very little to actually combat anti-Semitism and combat racism more widely. And I think it does even less to actually like inhibit organized far right. In saying all of that, I'm also not losing sleep that the swastika is banned. I, it is, I, I appreciate that it is very important, obviously, for public sphere actors like premiers, like prime ministers, opposition leaders, whatever, and governments to basically make a claim that, yeah, this kind of hatred is is not acceptable. It, it has no place in our community and all members of, of the community have a right to feel safe and not be intimidated and threatened. And I mean, and that's, that's the only purpose that that's supposed to go in these contexts. Of course, I appreciate that there are particular religious contexts, but in the context of the organized far right, the swastika only has one role, right? So I appreciate all of that. I'm not at all convinced that making this an issue for cops and courts <laughs> helps either. I certainly don't think we can police our way out of hate speech, for example. Um, yeah. 
Well, Jordan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find you on x.com, you are at Jordan underscore McSweeney and the book Far-Right Political Parties in Australia, Disorganisation and Electoral Failure is out early next year. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Andy, that's our show. We'll be back next week for our final show of the year. See you then. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are, at home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.